The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Galatians 2, 4 through 10. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who has worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Jimmy. I'm going to bring this water up here just in case. This weekend has been, with all the rain that we had and we're about to have, has been completely the weekend of like make-up baseball games for me. And I am worn out, I will tell you. Uh, but uh, it's funny, we're about probably going to have more makeup baseball games coming up. Um, <clears throat> yesterday we had the start of our tournament. So this is kind of a round-robin tournament my nine-year-old's a part of. And uh, we play at these fields. It's fun. I'm an assistant coach. I actually coach my four-year-old's team, head coach of his team, which is as cute as it sounds. Uh, and I coach my, assist my uh, nine-year-old's team. And, and so yesterday, though, first game of the tournament, we're number one and two ranked, okay? Don't think of it too high, by the way, uh, And in, the, in our bracket. So we're going against each other, and I had to leave early, and I hear this story that um, apparently the, the game just got more and more heated. And uh, all of a sudden, one of our kids rounds third base, bumps into the third baseman, the throw comes in, and he's tagged out at home, but the umpire calls him safe because of third base interference, right? Well, things have been boiling over already. Uh, I know. You're laughing. I am too, actually. Wait till you hear this. So he comes in. The the coach from the other team, I guess, comes out of the dugout. This is what I hear. I I had to leave. Thankfully, I was with my four-year-olds, which is super intense. Um, And <clears throat> and it comes out of the dugout, gets this close to the ump's face and starts screaming. Throws stuff in the dirt. I mean, stops the game. There's yelling. There's screaming. He's saying, I can't believe this. I mean, apparently he's saying he got him out by a mile. Our guy hit their guy. You know, like just going crazy at a nine-year-old baseball game. So, like, we're talking like stop the game. This is one of those things you see like on highlights at ESPN when they're like doing this with the dirt, like throwing it on his feet. Um, that kind of intensity. Now, I heard that the ump didn't do anything. Um, he was sitting there. But what if, let's, let's put words in his brain or even mouth at that moment. What if coach is in his face and he says first, he says, look, 
I call him out. I call it the way it is, right? He could say a lot of things. Or he could say, hey, I call it the way I see it, right? I call it out the way I see it. But what if <clears throat> he stopped for a moment as he's gathering himself with a face, you know, spitting in his own, and he says, I'm sorry, sir, what is an out? You know, how, how do you define out? Because for me, as an umpire, I define out very differently than you would maybe define an out. When he runs home, when he's tagged, he's, he's not out in that specific way. He's out in another, you know. Like, can you imagine if he launched into this discussion existentially about what an out is? Now, that would cause a lot more stir. But let me tell you, that is actually would be a normal conversation in what we do have in every day. When truth is thrown out, when there's some sort of defined boundary or border, then often it's not really met with just stoicism. It's met with, well, that may be an out to you, but that's not an out to me. That's what truth really does. It, it does in our culture a lot. It provides, a, whether it's in a position that you may take or a, con a conversation you've had. I've had multiple conversations of various kinds regarding that and discussing, okay, what is truth, right? Uh, well, okay, maybe that's true for you, but is it true for me? What about in a game like that? That doesn't, it's hard to make that fly, but what if the ump did that? That is the position that we hold, especially in the West. And so I think as we are looking, and we have been for the last several weeks, we'll continue, we're looking at <clears throat> the major questions regarding Christianity. What are objections to Christianity? Uh, wh what are the doubts that, you and, and I have. And one of the biggest, if not the biggest, is the question of exclusive truth. We talked about exclusive people, right, a few, couple, two, three weeks ago. And, but now we're talking about absolute truth, exclusive truth claims, right? That there are truth claims made by Christians and sometimes made in ways and used in ways that are really unhelpful and harmful. But I want to look at this passage because what we look in Galatians and what we're reading here is a letter that was written regarding the nature of the gospel. We use that word sometimes in church, right? What, what that word really means is good news, right? <clears throat> there were some that came to uh, the church and were saying, okay, if you want to be a Christian, you need to follow Jesus, but you also really need to have some extra rules in place. You need to kind of take on some extra things. So we're looking right here in the middle of this passage where Paul is having a debate saying, no, that's actually not correct. And these people are saying, because Paul is saying this, he's not even a, he, should we even listen to him? Does he even know what the gospel means? If there's not rules that you have to set in place, what is it? What does it really mean to be a Christian? And what are those claims? And often, isn't it what we think of when we think of truth? We think of rules. We think of things set in place. And we think of ways that we, we have something correct and we're following the correct way. But what does that really mean when we talk about it in Christianity? I think this passage draws up um, this understanding through this letter that Paul is writing to this church to help them understand we need to understand truth in two ways, restriction and relationship. And I think those are a, a healthy outline for this question whenever you face it. How do we discuss absolute truth with the words and definitions of restriction and relationship? Because it really holds both. You know, when we talk about 
discussion of truth, the first thing I think that does come up is restriction. You know, you think about one truth for you. Well, I mean, think of go back to the, the nine-year-old baseball game. What's restricted, right? Well, there's a restriction. There's outs. There's, okay, you bumped into the third baseman. You, you, you come in home. You, slot, you know, certain things that are restricted. You have to play the game this certain way. But oftentimes when we talk about things that come to faith, particularly about Christianity, particularly about uh, someone else's ideas or ideals, it can become really restricted. It's like, mm, you, can't, you, you shouldn't place those restrictions on me. You shouldn't put that on me. You may have the, that's healthy. Maybe it works for you, but that doesn't work for me. And we've, we've kind of moved into that <clears throat> idea. And in, in Galatians 2, verse 4, the very beginning here, he says this about these people. He says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, which is really interesting description what he's saying, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. So apparently there are these people who are called, he calls false brothers. In other words, they claim to be in relationship or in connection, but what they keep doing is putting restrictions on everyone that's coming in the church. So in other words, it'd be like saying, hey, you're, well, everybody, maybe you've been in church before. This is a perfect place for you. Maybe you're burned, cynical about even what I'm saying. And to receive this is hard because what you have received is, oh yeah, those Christians, they talk about grace, but when you come in, you're restricted to think exactly like they do. And Paul is actually pushing against that idea a little bit. He's saying, look, there's Jesus, and then there's not just and rules. There's either Jesus, and then through that, you understand restriction, but these rules that you're bringing in, they're false because they're restricting relationship to anybody in there. They're restricting the understanding that the gospel is really free. This idea of, of restriction is not a new thing. Look, it, it's been around for a long time. And this idea of the way that we handle it. Nietzsche brought this up some time ago. And it's a very prevalent thought. And the first way that he actually brought this in, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, was through the philosophy and understanding of perspectivism. He said this, listen to this. There are many eyes, so there are many truths. So, that, therefore, there is no truth. In other words, through that perspective, there's no truth. Because you have a different set of eyes than I do, truth is relative. I remember being uh, in college, and uh, I was a junior at the time. There was a guy who uh, was joining our fraternity. He didn't uh, claim to be a Christian. He had several different kind of ideas of faith. And I used to, it was like my favorite conversation because I never had people that I got to talk about at, in my university setting with this all the time. So he and I would have these debates and sit and go listen to different speakers and meet and talk for coffee after. And I remember having one conversation with him about cheating. And specifically, this is where he came from. He said, yeah, I totally think it's okay to cheat. If there's an opportunity for me that I need to, that, that, that is constructive in the way that I need to progress forward and I feel like I have that need, then I cheat in my classes. And I thought, man, that's fascinating. So what do you do with an honor council? <laughs> what do you do with restrictions that a university sets on you? How do the, who wins, right? So if a school says, hey, if you're cheating, you're going to be brought in for an honor council. You're going to be talked about how cheating is wrong. And you come in and say, but that's not wrong to me. Who wins? What restrictions are correct? It's from the different perspective. Uh, another idea that came in was through not just perspective, but power. It's typically a power grab. How do you, how do you grab 
power, that any sort of claim on truth is really a power grab, right? It's a way for us to claim it. Even if we were to say, uh, okay, Will, hey, let's take that video we just saw. Hey, if I was sitting with Will, good guy, love, love talking with Will. What if I was to say to Will, though, hey, Will, you know, that's, a, that's great that you're doing that and all, but I'm really suspicious of the fact that I think you wanted to set this whole thing up to serve other people in order for you to make a name for yourself. In order for you to say, hey, this is the way the job market should look, and so I'm going to put myself in a position to say, this is how it looks, I'm right, you're wrong. That was the other perspective of that, right? It's a power grab. Is it just simply that, the will to power? Or is it just even a social cultural idea? And we have this every time. Every time Tim Cook for Apple stands up, right? And he brings out a new product for us, holds up a new phone, a new you know, tablet or something else. Socially and culturally, we may not just come through those ideas of being a different perspective. It may just be, hey, what's the new and better idea? And we're just evolving, progressing. So many of the conversations that I have often are that. They're even less about, well, the perspective and quoting Nietzsche. It's more about, hey, we're moving forward so often and so much and at such a rapid pace. We need to just keep up with our ideas and, and truth continues to grow as it does. So how do you answer those questions? You know, uh, G.K. Chesterton said it well. He said, as we grow more, more in these directions, we grow more skeptical and grow more cynical of life. And G.K. Chesterton, who was kind of a precursor to C.S. Lewis, a great thinker, said this. He talked about the rebel as the new skeptic. He said, the rebel is an, a skeptic. The new rebel is a skeptic and will not trust anything. But therefore, he can never really be a revolutionary, for all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes by revolt. By, rebe by rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. You see what he's saying? He's saying what happens in our suspicion of anything and everybody having truth is we begin to take the legs out from underneath any of it. And so none of us can hold anything. And in fact, it erodes everything around it. It erodes a rela relationship. It erodes the fact that we go, hey, it's just a power grab, Will, for you to create this wonderful ministry called Corner to Corner. So I can't really trust that you're doing this for the better of anybody else, right? So when do we know truth is truth, that it, that it builds up? That restriction, it's about right restriction. It's not just about restriction in and of itself. It's about right restriction, real restriction that leads to freedom. See, that's what this passage is getting at. Notice what he says about them. He says, these false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery. In other words, Paul is, is, is demarcating, he's separating the fact that they're wanting to bring in rules in order to restrict, but it's not leading to freedom, it's leading to slavery. More rules leading to that. And you know exactly what that means. See, that's why so many of us come into a church and feel as though, hey, this is just another place. We sit in a pew, we hear a guy launch off for about 25 minutes, we take communion, we leave and go about our week, right? 
the reason we feel like we're just kind of doing this and we feel like it's just rule after rule set up is because we're missing. Paul is saying it, you're, you're, you are leading back into a life of slavery if that is your view of the gospel. That is restriction without freedom. Yes, everything has restrictions. Everything has it. But what is the right restriction? See, freedom requires truth, and truth means freedom. It's not the opposite of. It's not truth isn't the loudest voice. It's not the person who has the best platform. It's not the person who can, who can do the best work, and we just follow them. Truth leads to deeper freedom. Culturally, it's not about taking on more rules to make sense of things. This is what the Pharisees did. If you read in, in the Bible itself, the gospel accounts talk about the religious people themselves took on more rules in order to engage in their relationships with each other and God. Because they thought, hey, we need more restriction to keep us from sinning. We don't need more rules. Then what is your relationship to? It's to rules. Then you make sense of the world by rules. And then how do you know whose rule is right and whose is wrong? How do you make sense of that? And it's not by just culturally or ideologically taking off more rules. Isn't that what we say? We need more rights in the civil world in order to take off more rules, in order that I can feel free or want more free, you know, get my wants met. <laughs> but more rules and more rights and more morals set in place do we just, there's just another one that we need to knock down in order to feel free. When do we actually feel free? When do we have freedom itself? Paul is arguing that it doesn't come through that. It comes through something deeper. It's not just restriction. It's through the right restriction. Everybody is restricted. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the things in place that we do. If I was to ask anyone in this room who, who even may claim, and I want to encourage you if you're here, and I've had these conversations with, with people out of this room and in, who may say, ah, what truth is good for you is good for me. But if I asked you the question, if there was somebody in this world doing something that was damaging to someone else, would you stop them? Wouldn't you say Yes. See, we all have some sort of set of restriction that we believe is correct, that is right. We know that there's something that we need to follow. And the Galatians are, are following into, falling into that temptation because they're learning from other people coming in saying, you know what, the only way you can relate to each other and to this world around you and to the God that you want to worship is through more rules. Paul says no, it's through relationship. See, this is where it bends. This is where it says, yeah, there's through restriction, but through right restriction, through relationship. There's a passage in John chapter 8. It's really interesting. When the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus, and they say this, Jesus is talking to them about their relationship to God. He says this, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? See, isn't that the interesting thing that Jesus is saying? They have had the right place, the right positioning, and the right law for all their lives. How have they been enslaved to anybody? 
Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son has set you free, you will be free indeed. Did you hear what he said? The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And that's a small s. And then he says, so if the son, capital S, sets you free, you are free indeed. He's saying, if you're made a son or daughter, you're not made a son or daughter through rule. You're made it through relationship. You don't make sense of relationship through rule or law or obedience. Then what kind of relationship is that? Then how do you know if you're ever accepted by anybody? Then how do you know the truth? See, isn't that the way we live? I mean, I know I live this way. I, I want to come to church the same way and say, God, if I do everything just right, I know or I can feel accepted. I can know I'm accepted by ticking off the boxes. I can interact with other people and make them like me and think I'm being accepted because I'm doing everything right. Isn't that what we hold to truth? But the Bible is, flips it on its head. It says, what it means is to be a son brought in. How in the world does Jesus have the audacity to say what he says in John chapter 14 when he's sitting with the disciples and he's telling them, look, I'm going to be leaving you soon. And they get all sad. And how in the world does he comfort them? We would think, and we typically talk about it this way, we comfort them just being kind and in grace. This is where his most famous line is. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's how he comforts them. Why is that comforting? <laughs> Does that sound kind of weird to you? It's because there has been no one in history that has spoken about truth in this way. No one has talked about truth as embodying the truth themselves. The only one in history that has ever done that is Christ. He's the only one that does that. Because if you look, if you research, just even looking at, at, at Buddha, to his disciples in their hour of deepest, darkest need and comfort when he was dying, said, strive without ceasing. Think about the difference of that. Jesus is putting himself not as, hey, let me give you truth. Let me give you the path of how you get to this place. He's saying, I am the truth. And that radically shifts everything. Look, I, I mentioned earlier where I'm standing right now is where Dr. Martin Luther King spoke uh, in 1957, in uh, April, actually, not too, uh, it was about a month ago. And you can read about it on the plaque out there, but the speech is fascinating. It's really, really hard to find. It took me a while to try and dig it up. You can find it in, uh, Stanford has some of these, uh, of his speeches written out and typed up, and uh, it's an it's a f- amazing speech. Now listen to what he says, and he's talking about the truth of the day. So he begins his speech, and I'm going to just read an excerpt, but he begins his speech by saying, we are an incredibly advanced culture. I mean, it's genius. He, we're, we're a culture, look at the technology. I mean, he spends two, three full paragraphs discussing, describing how we are as a world and how advanced and how intelligent and how far we are down the road, and he says, and yet... We cannot treat one another with dignity and care. And then he talks about this as he read this speech regarding the church's role in this place. He says, The church must remind men once more 
that God is the answer and that man finds greater security in devoting his life to the eternal demands of the Almighty God than in giving his ultimate allegiance to the transitory, evanescent demands of man. The church must continually say to Christians, ye are a colony. This means that although we live in a colony of time, our ultimate allegiance is to the empire of eternity. Do you hear what he's saying? Like, this is 1957. This is from a man who is seemingly in a totally different time than us, but yet exactly speaks to us. How is it that we have all these advances, and yet we cannot learn to care for each other racially? Is that not unbelievable? And it's yet so true. How does it, how does it happen? Is it by creating more rules? Is it by creating more rights? Those things do help, but what is Dr. King getting at? He says, getting at the heart of it, we have to be transformed about our ultimate relationship in order for those to make sense at all. If we want to change this city by reaching across to people who are different from us, look, here's the beautiful thing about what Christianity is saying. It is not saying that you cannot be corrected by someone who may not be a Christian. If you hurt someone and they tell you you hurt them, that's truth. Uh, One of the great um, philosophers, uh, Foucault, who is, he he said himself, Christianity is a power grab like any other. You know know what really was fascinating to him about religion and particularly Christianity? He could not get confession. Confession threw him off. He said, because there's something about it, and and, and this is, it just destroyed him, and this was one of the things that he said that he couldn't get past. He said, I can dismiss a lot of things about religion and Christianity, but he said the one thing about Christianity he admires is voluntary confession. He said, it's a rare act of moral daring. It's one of the rare times as human beings when we confess that we're actually going on record against ourselves. We were wrong, we are at fault, and we are aligning ourselves with reality. Dude, that's amazing. Wow is right. Think about that. This is a guy who's, who literally would look at what we're doing right now and say, hey, this is, that's sweet that y'all are doing that, but this is really your way of trying to feel like you're a power grab. And yet he recognizes that when we go to confession, we're seeing the reality of truth about ourselves. He cannot cannot escape it. You see the difference between like, the conversations where I've had and somebody either upset or says to me in the midst of a, a conversation, do you have the corner on truth? Do you think you have the corner on truth? Do you know what Paul is saying in this passage? No, no, no. The truth has me in a corner. The difference in Christianity and what the Bible is saying about absolute truth is that he is the way, not a way, not here's here's the way. He is the truth, the life. Truth is embodied in him. That means every one of us has to submit to that. That means we're face-to-face with the reality of who we really are, and we can submit to even those in this room, and I, I want us to think about this, there are many of us in this room who want to launch out and use truth, which it has been oftentimes as a weapon to help us feel superior in places. This is saying there is no way we can do that. Paul, do you know what Paul is talking about referring to in this passage? 
a moment where he himself, when he had the Lord Jesus appear to him and commission him to bring the gospel, he had to actually go submit himself to Peter, James, and John. They asked him to come before him so that he could be entrusted to take the gospel. And Paul says in this passage, and you read it, he said, not that I needed to, right? He said, not not that it added anything to me in verse 6. But he did it because he submits to someone greater. Because the truth is not his, it's what has been brought to him. Look, we're about to come to a table that leads us nowhere but to truth. It is, a, it is a table that is tangible. It's in front of you. You and I can't avoid this table. <laughs> we have to deal with it for what it is. And the amazing thing about this is what it's saying is in order for us to actually make sense of loving one another, we have to go through something. You're, you're always free. You want to know what real truth is? You're always free from something, but you're always free towards something else. Whatever rules you set up in your life, whatever guidelines you have to try and escape oppression from one thing, you're always swinging from that to something else in order to throw off an oppressor. There has only been one in this world who says, I am the truth who has defeated every oppressor. What other truth unites us to come to a table to receive in no way that we can claim that we have the right rules to come. And in no way are we the right race or person or place or time. Jesus, as the truth, comes to you so that then you can make sense of that of the world. So you take in the Lord Jesus. It's not enough to to be around the table. I have to take him in in order for it to transform you, to change you from the inside out so that you can see those around you differently. Isn't that how any amazing relationship really is? That's why it's different. That's why not just a religion. It's actually a relationship with the truth himself. And if that's true, it means it transforms every way you look at truth around you in humility and certainty. So even people that you disagree with that don't think Jesus at all has anything to do with reality, we can humbly discuss truth with and for human flourishing and care for this world because we know who really owns it and has overcome it. It's in Christ. If you're here this morning and you would see this table and you think, this is great and all, but I really want to kind of I want to soak in this truth. I want to soak in the the questions and doubts. I would encourage you not to take from this table. I'd encourage you to actually come forward, either fold your hands and receive prayer, and just kind of observe, take it in. Uh, That's what the Lord Jesus would want you to do. Don't just come and take it just because everybody else is. With integrity, allow your heart to examine what this is. Because it is saying there are restrictions. You are loved in condition. Did you know that? We always talk about... Christianity is about unconditional love. No, it's not. It's actually condition. You know what condition? Jesus. That's it. That's all Paul was saying. And because that's true, if you're here and you say, gosh, I got to come to this table, but you have shame because you don't feel like you love him enough, or you have guilt because you totally failed this week, you need this table (laughs) because it's not based on your rules. It's based on your relationship to Christ. I need it.
And you know what? Let's stand.